on the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're time-hopping with the god of mischief in Disney's latest MCU series, Loki, joining Rose Byrne for a little living room workout in Apple's physical and reliving the entire pandemic, along with James McAvoy and Sharon Horgan in Dennis Kelly's feature-length one-off, not-a-film-really drama, Together. I'm James Dyer, and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that drew the ire of Josh Molina this week after Terry's comments about the West Wing's Will Bailey being a bell end of note. Got back to him on Twitter. Sorry about that, Josh. But joining me this week, as we see what other screen stars we can inadvertently offend, are my two rocking Pilot TV co-hosts, the Sean Michaels and Marty Ginetti of modern TV journalism, Terry White and Boyd Hilton. How are you? Can I just say on this yes. uh, Josh Molina tip... That's uh, what I very much enjoyed. So James wasn't on last week's podcast, and yet he still managed to make it all about him. Um, the question we answered, guys may remember, was um, the big Belland on TV. And I, I put forward Josh Molina from the West Wing. Will, I think I said something about him sliding around on greasy margarine. You did. Uh, and James wasn't here for any of this. James was not in any way involved in this. And a, a listener, a lovely listener, alerted us to this on Twitter. James, barely able to contain his glee, <laughs> leapt in, tweeting Josh Molina, going, in my own defence, like classic James tweet, in my own defence, I was off last week. Blah, blah. He doesn't care, he has no idea who you are. And I, I almost sent, I took a screen grab for it and I almost sent it to this group of people, as in us, saying... Yet, James, you were not involved in this. You did not say this. You had no part in this. And you've managed to centre this around yourself. And also, Josh Molina's going, who the fuck is this guy? And why is I will he have you know, me? I have a lovely relationship with Josh Molina after doing my big West Wing piece. In fact, when our West Wing feature went down temporarily, he messaged me to ask me where it had gone. So, oh, yeah. Okay, good. so are you saying he knows who you are? Oh, absolutely not. No, he has clearly no idea. But uh, Did he not. reply to you? Uh, I'd like to think in his heart. <laughs> no, that's a no. <laughs> oh, you absolutely So did you have fun without me last week, apart from your wildly passive-aggressive I mean, listener question? <laughs> we did, we did. But it was not only did you dominate proceedings in that in, in about that whole situation with the, bell, the whole Belling question was really about you, but also you announced, you announced... Like before we <laughs> we did our podcast without you, that you'd started to rewatch something. Yeah, sending your your hordes of fans, the army of fans, into paroxysms of excitement as a huge army of fans tried to guess what the fuck you would start rewatching. That's all they're interested. In. They weren't interested in us and our next podcast without you. <laughs> They're all like, what? So, yeah, are you going to reveal what the fuck you were watching? I, f- I feel I may I may have set myself up for a fall here because it's going to be wildly anticlimactic. Of course. Of course <laughs> it's it like, I maybe shouldn't have, you know, I don't know if I could call tweeting about it hyping it, but you know what I mean. So, so I'm not sure, Terry, whether you will approve of this or disqualify it on the principle that you can't rewatch something that never comes off TV. But I have started rewatching Friends from the beginning. Oh, now, you can read that's you can still rewatch. Yeah. So I've watched the first 17 episodes in a week. I just I just watched them whenever so when I would be watching Game of Thrones or whatever else I have been watching loads of friends. Um prompted obviously by the by the reunion but then I also went and read Vanity I think it's Vanity Fair you know they did a big oral history a couple of years ago which was mega and I read that and it I just got fascinated by it and I thought I really want to watch this with all that in my head and see how it kind of plays out on screen and I just got sucked in and I, I have weirdly so I watched uh, season one and two I've watched many 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 times because I had them on VHS tape when I was at university but um 
I genuinely don't think I have rewatched from season four onwards. Like I think I've seen all of that once. I don't think I've ever rewatched any of those episodes. How is that possible? Well, because of the way I watch TV. Like I never have just have the TV on, so I never see stuff that's just showing. It's always for me. It's appointment viewing. Like I'm going to sit down and watch five hours of Deep Space Nine, and that is what I'll do. Like I don't just flip on Sky and see if DS Nine is on. You know, that's far too mm. random for me. So, so I've never really just stumbled across episodes of Friends. You and Lisa Kudrow haven't watched entire yes. seasons of Friends. <laughs> me and Lisa Kudrow have not yeah. watched it. But I see yeah. I think I've seen every single episode because I used to watch it religiously when it first aired. So so I'm just I'm now going on the Friends journey again. I have to say I'm with David Schwimmer at this point. I'm finding Marcel quite annoying and I seem to recall liking mm. him when I first watched the show. Mm. So I, I'm very much looking forward to the monkey leaving. But uh <laughs> I mean it's you know and look this is the world's least hot take but watching this like it just you realize how fucking good that show is in terms of writing in terms of the way they inhabit those characters and the performances i'm enjoying it enormously uh, and I'm not any, even remotely bored, which, you know, for sitcom especially, is, is quite unusual for me. So. Oh, I mean, it's the least boring. They they worked so hard on not making that mm. show boring. I mean, yeah, that's one of the, the geniuses of it. So are you going to carry on watching the whole thing in order? Are you going to watch the entire... I, I think so. I wow. think so. I mean, who knows what else will happen? I must admit, I did start Friday Night Lights a while back and watch the first three in in preparation for Terry watching it before I realised that Terry was never going to get around to watching it. But I did start it, so I've now paused that until Terry gets to it and then maybe I'll press on with that. And I'm also considering starting a Peaky Blinders rewatch as well. Mm. But uh, I'm going to stick with Friends for, for now. And I think, you know, at the very least, that will, that will percolate in the background. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. What, what have you guys been watching? So I've been watching a few things. I want to talk about a few things. Firstly, I watched the second episode of Time. I would have watched the third, but it was the middle of the night. So, so my son hasn't been sleeping and I needed something to relax us both to try and get him into a better vibe. <laughs> so I put time on, which uh, actually sent him to sleep. So uh, I really loved episode one, as, as we might remember. Episode two was fucking incredible. Sean Bean, Jesus Christ. But do you know what's funny is? Sean Bean has always been for me the kind of epitome of... Yorkshire brawn. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. you know that that saying, um, Yorkshire born, Yorkshire bred, strong in arm, thick in head. And what? what it, Yorkshire born, Yorkshire bred, strong in arm, thick in head. I love the way you just said that as if it's a thing that everyone just knows. <laughs> I, I mean, all the people that I know know it, but he's always, you know, he's always been uber masculine. He's always been a very physical actor. And actually, like, it's really interesting to see him playing essentially a middle class teacher who totally can't handle himself, who's having, you genuinely buy that he's this guy in his 50s who hasn't had a fight, I think he said yesterday, in episode two for 40 years. And watching him play this really different man, I've just found really interesting, and Stephen Graham is incredible, as is, we should just say, Hannah Walters, who is his real-life wife, plays his wife in um, the drama. And it's so genius because they have amazing chemistry, but she was in This Is England. Like, she is a really really massively un undervalued actor she is so brilliant especially at drama but also comedy she's brilliant and she plays a blinder as Stephen Graham's wife I'm going to watch the third episode this weekend um and I can't wait the thing I wanted to talk about properly is breeders so mm. Boydie talked about breeders last week and talked about obviously James you and I had quite a strong reaction to the first season mm specifically to the amount of aggression and what I thought was verbal abuse by these middle-class parents who 
I I felt very strongly that if that was a working class family and it was based on an estate or something that it would have loads of judgment that it would be this awful thing that was happening to these kids it would be very clear who the aggressor and who the victim was and I felt like the way it was represented was loaded with class baggage um and it, it really bothered me actually it really upset me and I so I kind of refused to watch it after that boy did a very convincing kind of uh defense of season two last week and so I decided to give it a go last weekend and it's really, really interesting because my big issue with it was it represented what I thought was a really abusive situation in some respects. And, but kind of within this comedy setup, almost like accepted that or justified it or kind of made it feel like it was all right. And that really sat uncomfortably with me. The really interesting thing about season two, and I'm not going to do any spoilers, but all I would say is, is that part of their family dynamic is actually tackled properly for the first time there are scenes that i found really upsetting and not not for physical reasons but there are things that are said that i i mean i i'm literally like why is daisy haggard staying with him i would have my kid out of that house in a minute but it actually while still being i have to say the writing is really fucking good but without um without kind of it just becoming quite a heavy drama, it's still really funny, they start to actually tackle that stuff. And while it's not overtly about class, for example, there is that element. Um, he comes from a working class background. She went to boarding school, so, you know, middle class, if not upper middle class. And it, it actually, without, as I say, without being heavy-handed, without being overly judgmental or moralising too much, it starts to dig into that stuff. And that, for me, made season two actually really interesting and, and really worth spending time with. It's 10 episodes and I start. I watched one and I was still uncomfortable and I watched two and I was still uncomfortable. And then something about it pulled me in and I watched all 10 um, pretty much in one sitting. And, I mean, Daisy Haggard's performance is amazing. Martin Freeman's performance is amazing. And there's so much else going on. You know, what happens when your son doesn't turn out like you think a boy should be you know what happens in that scenario when you're when you're still dealing with your own issues with your own dad um and then you've just got the kind of modern mundanities of being in a marriage these days and I I don't know I think I I did judge it very harshly the first season I still think some of what I felt was valid but I think the way they really explored that stuff in season two is actually really, really fucking well done. And it isn't black and white. It isn't suddenly like Martin Freeman's the bad guy, but it is properly looking at that stuff that happens often in those families, the way they speak to each other, the way that the different generations find it hard to communicate with each other. So if you are on the fence about breeders, I would definitely say give it a go because I really enjoyed it. And I would put it from a quality level for me it sits up there with motherland and feel good this it feels like part of this amazing crop of of british kind of sitcom comedy that's happening at the moment that they the the dramatic chops are completely there but it's also just brilliantly brilliantly written so if you if you do feel uncomfortable in those first couple of episodes push on um i am totally glad I did it, and I feel a bit kind of bereft. Now it's over, I have to say. I think they might have done themselves a slight disservice by making the 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 where they live, that 
place is so lavish and beautiful, isn't it? It's like, and you think, well, how how can they afford this place? Like, it is spectacular. And also, it's not even it's just that it's like big, this big London kind of apartment townhouse. thing. Mm. Townhouse thing. It's also, the way it's designed is so beautiful. The production, it actually, but I actually think it detracts slightly from the show because it, I think yeah. the whole, that whole class thing you're talking about and the way, I, I think it, I think that has a big impact. If they'd have just shot it in a normal, like for example, trying, you know, the apple, mm. which I also think is part of that in, the, in mm. that group you mentioned, that they did a very clever job of making it into a small Camden place where they live, that couple live, and, con- and they don't have enough room. And they actually made a whole episode out of the fact they didn't have space for a kid if they do ado- manage to adopt a kid. And yet it's still filmed beautifully, and they kind of make it work, you know, as, as a kind of, you know, modern-day, beautifully filmed pig TV sitcom. Whereas I think in, in the one issue almost I have with Breeders, it's too beautiful. And that yeah. place, particularly the home, is so lovely. It's slightly at odds with the whole show. Yeah, and it's because you want to believe in them as a normal middle class yeah. family. And yeah. the first thing I said to Daniel, my my boyfriend, was, I was like, "If you see that fucking house, do you know how much that must cost?" Right. And there's a big deal made in season two about when they went from renting a place with literal yeah. mold on the ceiling to buying their first house. Like you can't, like I don't care what yeah. year it was, you could not yeah. buy that as your first yeah. house. Like, and it's got a glittering view of the city behind it, and all that. I'm like, this is insane. Yeah, <laughs> it's and really it's really weird. And the, sh- the house, for me, is almost like a character in its own right, because yeah, there's also yeah. something quite oppressive, you know, like in the windows, in the mm. kitchen, there aren't many windows, yeah. the way it's designed. But it's, I mean, it's like modernist. It's like yeah. completely yeah. mad. And it doesn't seem like the kind of place that would fit with either of their characters. No. No. And I was working the money side out of it. So I yeah, was like... you do. Hey, like, how, what, he's just a work? management something, consultant or whatever. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, and she, you know, edits ads. Ads, right? Like, but how do they? I'm like obsessed with the money side of it. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's a bit distracting. It's interesting. Mm, I'd love to mm. hear somebody talk about mm. why they chose I that specifically. Think I might have asked them about it, but I can't remember what the answer was. I because it was so so prominent in my mind that yeah, it was weird when we because yeah. they drive us. It's really funny. They're very specific about that house it, and the exterior because it isn't. I, I always think like houses on that, it's like motherland. It's like a blank yeah. canvas, right? The, the difference yeah. between Julia and Meg's is how they, you know, decorate yeah. it. And, and Meg's is cool and sleek. And Julia's looks like a bomb's hit it because she's chaotic. But their houses, other than that, are much for muchness. They're a blank canvas on which the it plays. But the house is so specific. The exterior of the house is so specific. And, I, and it must be deliberate. The car they drive, all of that stuff. And I suppose they're... You know this this struggle, especially Martin Freeman has with where he came from. There's a lot about his parents' housing as well, where he came from, and symbols, I suppose, of having made it and being middle class, and that tension between that. I don't know. It is it is interesting. Mm. James couldn't care less. Could no, you sorry, I stopped listening some time ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, amazing. You're still with us, really. I mean, <laughs> just walked out. <laughs> Yeah, um, maybe you could try and watch Breeders now, James. I, I see. I don't think I'm going to do that. No. It's possible the second season I would find less offensive because it's you yeah. know the kids are slightly older and it's slightly different. But I think what bothered me more than the activity of the show and having listened to Martin Freeman stuff discuss it, it was like everyone thinks these things. Everyone wants to call. Everyone wants to call their kids motherfuckers. And and I was like, that's just not true. And 
it just I I just found that kind of put me off the whole thing that there was a thread of nastiness I felt to that show which as Terry said just bordered to me on like verbal abuse and I just found it really uncomfortable watching but uh, it's possible that that smooths out as you say and maybe I would go on with it but it's I'm not, not giving it's it not another chance out. it's not smoothed out that still exists and I still had a very strong reaction to that I still found it very upsetting mm. but it's not it's not treated in the same way to me it's not treated in the same way as season one episodes I saw. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I don't know, I'm, I've, I've got a kid, but I'm not yet at the being able to, to have a conversation with him. Never mind, call him a little fucker. But, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know if that really does go on. I really hope that doesn't go on. But it's, it, it still feels very extreme to me. Um, if I saw somebody talking to their kid in the street like that, I definitely want to ring social service. But <laughs> I, I feel like, I do feel like there's more actual kind of, it, they just treat it with a little bit more context and 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 as something not that's not just okay. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Right, Boyd. What have you been watching? Well, I've been waiting for you to watch this show for a while. Panic on Amazon Prime. Oh yeah, I still haven't. I still it's a haven't. YA. It's a YA. You know, it's got James written all over it. But I can't be bothered to to, to carry on waiting for you. So I've watched it myself. <laughs> Um, and it's so it's Lauren Oliver's um, series. It, it arrived right. It's one of those shows that Amazon Prime scheduled it very very late in the day after boring TV TV listings deadlines, or at least mine. And um, so I kind of we didn't get around to reviewing it on here. And um, a lot of people have mentioned it on Twitter, saying you know why didn't you review Panic? Um, my my excuse is that Amazon Prime didn't tell us about it in time. Um, but it's a lavish. It's another one of those shows where I, I, I'm obsessed with the fact that, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, this show would have been like a massive phenomenon, beautifully filmed. Every every shot is like, you know, is lovely, beautifully lit. It's got a great cast. Olivia Welsh, Jessica Sula, who is in Skins, is, is kind of actually the MVP in it. She plays a, a character called Grace, who's really interesting. It's basically, and it's got this crazy concept that from, and it's adapted from Lauren, of, Lauren Oliver from her own um, book, that in this, this the, the teenagers who have just graduated from high school in this small town have this secret pact where they take part in super dangerous activities and someone sets them every year. It's like an annual event. And someone sets these really dangerous things like putting, locking yourself in a coffin overnight or jumping off a cliff into water. And then they get more and more insane, these challenges, as time goes on. And the person, the, the teenager who wins, who manages to do all them, wins a huge amount of like 50 grand, a life-changing amount of money. It's kind of gathered, the money gathered by the local bully anyway, who's a kind of weird, dodgy character. There's a character in it, like this kind of sexy, mysterious character in it called Dodge Mason. <laughs> So it's got like brilliant names like that, played by Mike Faced. Um, it is it is really interesting. I was and I was and it's really well written. I think it's I think it's really good because I was kind of half expecting. You know all those. I have to say there are like three or four Netflixy YA shows that all of which James kind of likes, and I like some of them but not others. Like one of them, Shadow and Bone was was renewed this week. We it was probably mentioned yeah. the news, but I couldn't. I had to actually for a moment. I thought like, which one was that? Like among the three or four different Netflix YA properties, I couldn't quite remember which one it was, and then I then I reminded myself. But I actually think this might potentially be better than any of those because it's just it's it's witty. It, the dialogue works. It's got a slightly heightened dialogue, but you kind of believe in it. You believe in the characters, and there's like stereotype characters in it. But it, but the show, as it goes on, it's ten episodes. I'm halfway through. I'm about up to four or fifth episode. Um, so basically, um, 
uh, yeah, fully on board with Panic. It's really well done. It's um, funny, sharp, witty, and um, and it's got and the premise is so ridiculous. That's the thing about it. You kind of and it's got it starts by the way. It starts with this with a message saying, "Please don't try any of this at home." It literally starts <laughs> with that, even though it's a drama. You know, it's a thriller in which people are doing mad things. But but Cooks is there. It's aimed at young. T- YA people, teenagers. They have to tell them to not throw YA people. It's saying that these people. YA people. YA people. And then, by the way, but there's also like swearing, there's effing and jeffing and yes. sex and all that. But they but they have to have this really weird um, disclaimer at the beginning of the episode telling people not to reenact the events. And it was like, well, in every single thriller known to man, you could put that disclaimer on if any teenagers are going to watch it. It's weird. But I really enjoy it. I'm really enjoying Where it. Where does this fall on the wink spectrum? Like- right. So it's interesting because it's not a supernatural. Yeah. So it's kind of no that's fairies. why I like it. I think more. I'm I, I'm not that I'm not so pathetic that I don't like any supernatural stuff. But I thought I found the supernatural stuff in Wix slightly comical, and you know, <laughs> whereas in this because it doesn't have that element, I, I I kind of I'm I'm buying into it more. So I think it's I think but I think you will like it almost. I'll as much. give it a go give definitely. A go. Like I'm the lack of supernaturalness, supernaturality, whatever you want to call it, uh, bothers yeah. me slightly. But I, maybe I'll maybe I'll jump into that a little bit soon. Um, maybe I'll put friends on pause and go uh, and try panic out. I don't know. We'll see. It does feel very me. So uh, yeah, yeah. I think I'm, right, I'm prepared yeah. to give that a go. Good. Uh, shall we move on then to this week's listener question, which comes to us via Jonathan Hatton, and it is. Which character had the best exit from a TV show mid-series, i.e. before the end of the show's full run? I would say Will Gardner in The Good Fight, which is a very good shout. We've talked about this on this podcast before. Now, this this question courts spoilers in quite a big way. So I'm going to say we should probably caveat this. But also, I'm going to impose a three-year moratorium on character deaths. So anything prior to that, I'm saying it's fair game. But anything in the last three years, I'm saying we should disqualify. You just told us this. You did not tell us this when you sent us this question to prepare. I mean, Think of it as vengeance check. for the Belen question last week. Jesus Christ. I mean, seriously. So I'm saying, first of all, we probably have to disqualify everyone from Game of Thrones. Because yeah. that feels like it's not really the same thing. Because it's, it's a book art. We knew certain people were going to die, although there are some pretty spectacular departures in that show. I'm not sure that quite works. One that I would chuck out, which I always found... I mean, this is kind of a, this is a question. So it's not like the worst departures. It's just it's like the best actual departure. So not the character leaving is good. The way they leave, and I would say Dominic Monaghan on Lost when Charlie goes out, not Penny's boat, like that is a really good character exit. It's a great death. It's full of pain. It really gets you. Like you really feel it. But not only is it really sad and poignant, but it's a big plot twist as well. Like he reveals that piece of it. He scribbles it on his hand, holds it up to the window, and then drowns. You know, but that's that's kind of a seismic moment. We should all wish to go out like that. Like Charlie, drowning with a message written on a hand, pressed up against a window. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not, I'm just re- rethinking my whole list because of what you said about the three sorry, and sorry. Game of Thrones. Like not even Ned Stark. We can't even talk about that. I mean, because, Ned Stark is a good one. It is yeah, a very good one. Because for me, I was going to say, for me, like the, the, the Game of Thrones became once you once you know once everyone once it became a phenomenon, if you like, mm. the thing that it became famous for, I think, apart from dragons, was shock deaths. <laughs> Wasn't it? it was like, Who's killing the main character, killing off main one. characters. Yeah. But I think it mm. set that tone brilliantly with Ned Stark in the first season. That was so unexpected. Like if you, because I was watching it live, so to speak, and it hadn't really mm. become a phenomenon. I was like, and for me, like Sean Bean, you know, you cast Sean Bean and he as a in quotes big star, and he was kind of established as like the main character really um, for me in that first season. And then 
what happened to him. You, was you so... are talking about an actor who's died in almost every single role he's ever played. So, right. you know, sure, yeah, but that. still, oh come on, it was still a massive shock when that happened. So, and I thought I just thought it set the tone for the whole for the whole rest mm. of the history of that show. I would um, argue the red wedding was probably more shocking than that of course. one. I, I don't disagree, but I'm more, I mean, I'm, I'm more talking about how it set the tone for for the whole rest of the sure, show. Sure, sure, yeah, and that's, it does. That's, it does because yeah. no character is safe, and that's part exactly. of why the show's exciting to watch. Exactly. Oh, the red wedding totally is, is yeah, hundred yeah. percent is is more shocking. Yeah, I mean that is that is a one of the greatest mass death shocks of all time. Yeah, completely. Now, like Terry, I'm I'm curious as to whether Terry is going to say the tenth Doctor or not because the character kind of doesn't depart, but. He does depart, and it's quite a departure. So, what are we saying? Well, I'm not actually. And what? And you made this question harder. We should all acknowledge by saying it had to be mid-series. Right? It wasn't in, my question. Blame Jonathan a, Hatton for that. Jonathan, in a classic, uh, make a potentially good question really hard um, and lessen our options. But I have two. One of which is uh, Ruth Wilson leaving mm. the affair. So that was. A genuine, and th- and that's for me when a mid-season exit really works. It's harder and harder in this day and age, but I had no clue whatsoever. I'd, I'd read rumours about her kind of falling out with the showrunner and the drama and stuff, and then when I watched the episode in which Alison, spoiler, dies, um, and it's the genius episode which is shown, which you see two versions of what happened, both from Alison's perspective, but only one of them is true. The upshot is still the same, which is she ends up fucking face down in the river. It's so brilliantly done. The first time, you know, that two-perspective construction had been the way the affair had told its stories all along. And it was used very simply when it first started, which is essentially, you know, the people having the affair and the people who are being cheated on. And it worked really, really, really intelligently then. To kind of really twist that, make it quite high concept and have this terrible, terrible event shown kind of a fantasy version of it and then a reality version of it, um, both from inside the head of the same person I just thought was was genius. Um, and it's really shocking, right? A mid-season, the person who the show was centred around, really, like that's the, that's the reality of the affair, is you can argue that other people um, had kind of seasons that they owned from a performance perspective where their center story was more centered but this was always the story of Alison what happens when you lose a child like this how does that feed into romantic relationships um you know her own relationships with her own parents you were always brought back into Alison's orbit and so for her to go out and to go out in a brutal fashion I mean the wheels probably came off after that because you also had if everyone remembers Mm. in that season the future where people oh, God, weren't yeah. riding around on hoverboards, but oh, Anna Paquin God. was running around with a too tight French plait, having dangerous <laughs> sex with men who liked to choke her, while she kind oh, of yeah. went through a dystopian hellscape on a train or whatever it was meant to be, this uh, transportation device. I mean, it, it properly went crazy, but that exit was shocking. It was brutal. It was incredibly final. Um, there was no kind of, maybe we can resolve this down the line and we'd like Ruth Wilson to come back um, going on. Uh, one of the most shocking I can remember, but there can be only one answer, right? Which is John Spencer as Leo McGarry in The West Wing. I know he died. See, I was going to say, this is awkward. Uh, I See, I don't know that this 
is because Why? obviously it's saying the best exit from a TV show yeah. series. I'm not sure I'd call that a good exit. Do you? Can you name me another? So, did the the shock of someone leaving or you know something happening mm. to somebody mid season? Um, that often is where a lot of the emotion comes from. Yeah. The way they, obviously, John Spencer sadly died in real life, mm. but the way they worked that in, so his last appearance was in the cold. Obviously, it wasn't for another couple of episodes in Election Day Part 1. That And, and it's the way they did it, I thought, had such dignity, but emotion and shock and awe. So the, the moment when um, she goes into the hotel room and... Just go and the camera walks and she walks into the bathroom and you know and you you oh. don't you never see what she saw but you know what she saw and you know she's the person who then conveys that he has in fact died when Josh and Donna are walking down the car like the I don't know if I've ever lost my shit to that degree and obviously it was so incredibly sad that it had happened to me in real life and you knew how close the cast were and what. It meant to them to be, you know, performing this scene, but that was based in reality and in real love and real emotion. And I say best in terms of most impactful, most, I mean, the way that paid tribute to him, the way it paid tribute to his his importance in the show, his importance in American popular culture, the love that was clearly between, I just thought it was handled because there are you can imagine there are not terribly good ways to handle something like that i thought it was handled with such grace and dignity and in true service of that character but also that man and i i text you the first time i watched it i had to turn the tv off i mean you know like joey puts the book in the freezer if i could have got my tv <laughs> off the wall and put it in the freezer i would have done it was i i was so emotionally bowled over by that um do they still have the martin sheen announcement a couple of episodes yeah. earlier they still have yes. it on there okay interesting. Yeah. which that started that me dying. crying that mm. started me off you know and and i just think that it's it was done so so beautifully and became you know this hugely important part of the entire story of west wing but that's that season it kind of for me it all it always now pivots around those cluster of episodes and and I don't mean best to be reductive or, or disrespectful or offensive. I just think it's it's a truly powerful piece of, of television. Mm. Well, they did that a number of times. Like, I always think the Mrs. Landingham departure, which obviously Kathy mm. Houston was alive and well at the time. Um, but writing her out like in that episode, which is, um, you know, when she's, it's uh, 18th and Potomac, yes. where she goes. And the whole episode, like, it builds up. It's like, it's funny banter about how she's getting this new car and the president of Charlie, a mansplaining about the tow package and she should pay sticker price. And she's like, oh, man, you're the worst. And then she goes to pick it up. And it's just Charlie's deadpan delivery when he picks up the phone. It's just, it's just, it's just completely leached of emotion, his voice. Mm. Like he's in such shock. And he's just, no. And he's like, she's dead. And it's not said, it's not overacted. It's not said with grief in his voice. It's just absolute flat, like he's in complete shock. Mm. And I think that's what makes that really land. Mm. I went down a completely different route, yeah, of, um, of um, Jessica Rain being thrown out of the window in um, in the first episode of Series 2 of Line of Duty. I just <gasps> think that's like, yeah. you know, I just think that is, it was it such is. a brilliant shock. Deep Fat Fryer! Deep the Deep Fat Fryer, fryer well. more yeah, so, fat fryer I think. Well. Yeah, I think the window one is kind of let down a little bit by the dodgy 
green screen on that like there's something because chris hewitt that's the only episode of line of duty he's ever watched and he said he thought it was like some kind of spoof he thought it was like no. a joke but which of course well it isn't done. but and it wrong fits you know it's well done emotionally i just think there was a, a an effects budget issue with that particular sequence also hospital windows don't open like that but that's skip over that um, <laughs> hospital windows don't open like that is brilliant i dare you to say that to jim mercurio and see what happens <laughs> but but like deep fat fryer oh my god yeah, yeah spooks. Deep fat fryer. Yeah. that was full on yeah but I mean, there's loads in line of Stephen Graham was death in yes. that was brilliantly. Yes. Oh, you know, there are there are plenty of amazing deaths um, in that whole show. Yeah, I have to say the one th- the one I always bring up in any discussion of any death on TV, and I bring it up because I am obsessed with it, is Russell T Davis's Cucumber, episode six. Uh, which I bang on about constantly at any opportunity I get is one of the greatest single episodes of TV drama in history and even though it's a limited series but it was eight episodes and I won't, in fact, I won't spoil it I, can, I will just say one of the main so there's a kind of core three or four main characters in that show and one of them dies and how it's done Terry's putting a hand up. <laughs> well, I just because I just thought Russell Tovey, right? Well, do you know what? Yeah, but it's only two years ago. So in 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 bloody uh, James's <laughs> new rule, we're not allowed to say it because it was only two years ago. Unbelievably, it seems like a long time ago. But yeah, I mean, we apparently. can talk about that one because we talked about it numerous times on this podcast, and Russell himself has talked about it on this right, podcast. Okay. So I but think we're allowed is, to yeah, talk about the Russell fact T. That Russell Tovey dies in years and years. <laughs> Russell T. Davis, among many other brilliant things he can do, he can do a fucking death of one of his yeah. characters. So it makes you care about them so much and in both these examples Russell Tovey and the one I'm not spoiling Cucumber they are both brilliantly handled and devastating Mm. absolutely devastating you know the one that I didn't shock me the most because Nick DeSemlin ruined it for me before I actually saw it which I've still never fully forgiven him for but I think one of the ones that upset me the most was Omar Little in The Wire Mm. Uh, yeah. because it comes deliberately out of nowhere like he's yeah. buying cigarettes and just gets shot in the head off from uh, from off camera and it's just it's so shocking and he's such a you know relatively minor but beloved character and he's been a constant all the way through the show like that that really really got me more so actually than Stringer's death which is which oh, is more yeah. telegraphed uh, that I was because like, Omar's just comes out of nowhere yeah Omar's comes out of nowhere it's the randomness mm. of, of, of the randomness of, of, violence. of violence yeah, yeah absolutely in the, in the yeah. and the, it's a kid home. that does it yeah, yeah. Yeah, that no, I, I, that was one. Of the, that's the most powerful moment of that whole fucking thing. I think. Yeah, it's really, really good yeah. and really well done. Any others you would like to throw in before I give you the definitive answer to this question? I mean, Matthew Crawley, obviously. Who's that? Oh, your... cousin, Matthew. cousin Matthew! Never take your eyes off the road, cousin Matthew. Yeah. Never yeah. take your eyes off the road. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the definitive answer to this is, of course, Terry. Dr. Romano on ER, a man who lost his arm to the rotor of a helicopter and then, because he was such an unbelievable bellend and should have won last week's question as well, a helicopter dropped on his head and blew him up outside the hospital entrance. And what is that line? What is that line he says as he sees it coming towards him? It's, oh, you know what I mean, though, don't you? He I can't remember. Goes, I think he just literally goes, oh, fuck. He's been there before, as you say, on the roof having his arm sliced off. And it's that that moment when he looks skyward. And you can it's just a brilliantly, are oh, you fucking kidding me? <laughs> moment. Somebody in the writer's room really did not like him because I was like, that is almost like a piss take. But he was such a bellend, Romano. He was. Such a bellend. But flashes, uh, as with... With all the finest bellends, flashes of, of humanity and in, in very certain situations. Very few of them. Like I think Beth last week was going to defence for, for, for Kerry Weaver. And I was like, actually, you know, I can, I can totally see that. But I, yeah, I won't defend Romano. Ever. Yeah. Anyway, 
Jonathan, I hope that has answered your question. If you have a question for the Pilot TV podcast, then do feel free to DM it to us on Twitter at Pilot TV Pod. And now, the news. Uh, we, I mean, you spent an inordinate amount of time on last week's show talking about the TV BAFTAs, but why don't we get into it again now? Because we do obviously have the results. They are in. It all happened a week ago. Were we pleased? Were we not pleased? How do we feel? Very pleased, yeah. I, I hey. Michaela Cole, mainly. I mean, she's the, so she's the first person in BAFTA history to win awards for leading actress, writer, director, and miniseries. For I May Destroy You, so that is the the extent of the of the um, triumph, and she. I mean, obviously, she totally deserved it. I May Destroy You is historically brilliant show that James still hasn't watched. <laughs> still can't go. Still can't get through it, which I find completely irritating and amazing. Um, but nevertheless, but she, also just her presence, her poise on these occasions. And you know she writes a speech. She she. Every, do you know how kind of just for, just the mere fact that she writes a speech on a piece of paper and delivers it, and it's as brilliantly written as everything you know everything else she writes. Whereas people, a lot of people, you know, kind of they stumble onto the stage. They're like crying. They haven't prepared anything. I'm not having to go. Those people. But I just think it's very real and honest of her to go yeah I might win this thing and so I'm going to prepare and say what I need to be said so and she thanked the intimacy coordinator particularly I think when she won the final award at the BAFTAs and I thought that was so interesting she said how you know almost having an intimacy coordinator that changes the whole dynamic of of of, of sets and these days and I thought that was that, that was such a good point um so even though she'd won you know myriad awards for that show she's still making fascinating interesting important points when she c- picks up these awards so I was just massively thrilled for her and um can barely remember what the other awards were as a result I was thrilled for Lenny James yeah oh my god yeah won, of course which I just thought and I We've obviously been huge fans of both Save Me and Save Me Too, but he was, you know, he was up against Gangs of London and The Crown and absolutely triumphed, which I think is, I was so thrilled to see it be recognised that way. The only um, uh, show I was really gutted for, I think, was um, I Hate Susie, Mm. which I totally get because also I Hate Susie was in some of those categories we've just talked about, obviously Michaela Cole and I May Destroy You winning and... I just felt for them because it is such a brilliant, disruptive, weird, radical show. Billy Piper's extraordinary. The writing, extraordinary. Direction, like everything about that show, I think is brilliant. I just think it came out in the same year as uh, I May Destroy You, which I think will be will go down as absolutely one of the most iconic shows in, in British TV history. So I, I did kind of have I wanted them to take away something mm. to recognize that but really you can't complain when you look at the full list of winners you know you've got um Steve McQueen's uh, small acts one of you as well I mean it was all of those things that you felt like some of the other award ceremonies massively missed the trick on I mean I made sure you was the biggest example of that but it felt right to me mainly it felt like they'd really kind of nailed what the standout pieces of of work were was there anything Boyd that surprised you save me too yeah you're absolutely right I, mm. I, I, he was so surprised and I was surprised because like yeah I just think the crown and games they're such gargantuan things because it was so long ago it feels like a long time ago uh, that we were banging on about it constantly but yeah I absolutely thrilled about that I was a little bit surprised um in a good way that Paul Mescal won for normal people mm. um were you I, yeah, I don't know why I just felt that was like they've got six 
they have six, they have six nominees in the in the acting categories now, and you know John, it's up against John Boyega and Josh O'Connor. Um, oh, you know, I was a hundred. I was team oh, mescal all the way. I were was you? thrilled to bits for that. I wanted I mean, normal people to walk be- away with more. Yeah. But I think, no, but I think Boyd's right about it being a surprise. I, I don't know what the odds were. And I, I just think it, it was such a... Same with actress, though. You look at the actress category. My God, it was just, you know, Hayley Squires, Billy Piper, yeah. um, Michaela Cole. Like, it was... It's incredible. The talent is is insane. Yeah. And I think it was a slight surprise that Amy Lou Wood won for Sex Education mm. um, Best Female. That was a surprise. She's yeah. very, very good, though. She's brilliant. And because and, and, her storyline was the uh, being abused on that bus. That, That's um, right. You know, yeah. Which was yeah. an incredibly powerful storyline. Yeah. And, and, and all the scenes that she was in subsequent to that, that was a that was a brilliant choice by the producers and writers of that show to make her character centre of that. Because she was kind of like a bit of a goofy character at that point. Mm. But to see her dealing with that. And so I was really pleased for her. I thought, and she, you know, she was up against Daisy Haggard and Daisy May Cooper and Bemisola Cumello and Mae Martin, you know, that was a gargantuan category, female performance in the comedy programme. Um, I'm thinking of other surprises. Well, I think the big surprise, of course, was that Nigella was robbed for the uh, micro wave. Yes. So I don't yes. know what happened in your category there, boy. So I'm I was very pleased that Britain's Got Talent and the Diversity won. That yeah. was lovely because th- that was like redemption, wasn't it? You know, when you get... Yeah thousands of idiots complaining about it kind of you know and inspired to do so partly by by the paper some of the papers for then you know for, for them to get millions of people voting for it in this in the BAFTAs in a, in a positive way saying it was their favorite moment of the year was great and they were so chuffed I believe we have talked about the BAFTAs enough is there anything else you would want to talk about oh what's that C has been preemptively <laughs> renewed for a third season you don't say Terry well so just before we began this podcast <laughs> A trailer <laughs> dropped into my inbox, which I haven't had time to watch, James, sorry, but I presume that will be your first... Is this C Season test. 2 trailer, Terry? This is a C Season 2 trailer. I haven't watched it yet because I haven't been into my email, so I haven't seen oh, it. You've I know. My point was it, it literally yeah. dropped just as we oh, fired up this. Yeah. So it's waiting for us. I had time to watch it. I've watched it, James. You know, oh, there's, a, there's a date announcement as well, August something or other. Yes! <laughs> yeah. Did you, did See, it's coming in August. Oh, See, should we book in the special now? Book in the special now. Um, it's very, it looks spectacular. It looks absolutely spectacular, as you'd expect from a should. lavish, multi-gazillion dollar um, Apple TV Plus series. They've definitely, they have not, you know, they've definitely looks like they've cranked up the um, spectacle. That's 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 the main message that I think the tra- the season two trailer is delivering. But you see, Apple did a whole trailer, didn't they, for loads of their shows, all their big shows yeah. coming up with bits of um the morning show and um, so i'm slightly more excited about the morning show than i am see season two is but but yes but the fact that season two is arriving in august means that surely the morning show must follow quite soon after that has made my day see coming in august and a third season already greenlit oh it is a great great time to be alive uh what else has been renewed as you mentioned shadow and bone has been renewed for a second season i'm actually very pleased about that because i got really into that by the end and i really want to know what happens without having to actually just go and read the books and find out but uh yeah i thought that was that was a lot that started a bit slowly for me i wasn't entirely sold at the beginning but by the end of that i was 100 percent in love a bit of shadow and bone um you know roku the you know they bought all those queeby we talked about how they bought all yes, the queeby all the queeby shows, and they Called them Roku Originals rather, of rather than yeah. brilliantly. Well, they've actually commissioned a second series of one of them, Kevin Hart's really? Die Hard one. Yeah, yeah. So it's now really weird now where they've bought all, acquired all these shows, they've re, re-batched them as Roku Originals, and they've actually gone so far as of commissioning a new series of one of them, of the Kevin Hart one. So, okay, fine. So that, that kind of justifies slightly more the fact that they're now calling them Roku Originals and hoping we'll all forget that they were made for Queeby originally. 
So there is life in Queeby, yeah, is the main is the main message. Queeby lives story. on. Queeby lives on via Roku. Uh, what else? Speaking of dates that we got, there is a date, 16th July, we'll see the return of War of the Worlds, mm. which is very, very exciting. And that's coming to start on Disney+. Plus. But I, I really enjoyed that. I think we, because we had The War of the Worlds, which was the slightly ropey English period, 19th century one. Yeah, and then BBC War of the Worlds, which was the French Canal Plus co-production. Uh, and that was really, really good. Like I remember I binge-watched, I think, the entire season over a night. I pulled it all night to watching it. I loved it. Daisy so Edgar I'm very Jones, excited yeah. that's got a day. Daisy Edgar Jones, absolutely, yes. It's got Gabriel Byrne in it. Yeah, that's, that's really good. A lot of fun. So I'm I'm interested to see whether it because it ends on a big old cliffy hangery thing. 16th July then on Disney Plus for War of the Worlds. What is that? And the Book of Boba Fett has wrapped. Ming-Na Wen posted something on her social media saying that that has now wrapped. So I'm not quite sure when it's airing, but, uh, but we'll get to see Boba Fett return. What else is happening? They put out a picture of Jensen Ackles, didn't they, in um, The Boys? Of, as that? Soldier Boy, yeah. yes, for season yeah. three of The Boys. Yeah. Were you were you particularly taken? Oh, Helen O'Hara was very pleased with it. Right, yeah, I was going to ma- mainly mention it because for Helen O'Hara's obsession with supernatural. Um, uh, the main takeaway that I took from the from the story is that it took six months to make that suit, to make that costume. Six months. I mean, and it was how? just like tossed away. Right, it was just tossed away in the middle of the press release. Well, you know, we, we like to read our press releases very often. <laughs> but I did read that press release, and I, I want more information on how it took them six yes. months. To Perhaps that'll that be the documentary costume. feature. Will be the making of the suit. Yeah, yeah. But he sounds like an interesting character, though. Um, uh, soldier boy who fought in the war and fights Nazis and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the interested. Captain America paradigm. Um, can I just mention also uh, that the new issue of Empire oh, yeah. magazine is out. It came out last Thursday, as we record this on the Friday. Uh, now, it's a celebration of what we're calling the British New Wave, which is an incredible group of actors, directors and writers who are pretty much killing it on the world stage. So after award season, we were like, these British people are actually dead good and are winning loads of stuff. Um, and they're in loads of amazing stuff. So included in there are some brilliant telly people, um, like, actually more, I'm sure we'll talk about her in a moment, is uh, Wunmi Masaku, who is obviously in Loki. She is featured in there, but also we have Billy Piper. We have Ollie Alexander. We have Olivia Cook. Emerald Fennell, we have Hayley Squires, we have loads of amazing people. Um, so Kingsley Benadir from the Kingsley OA. Kingsley Benadir from the OA, <laughs> but he's the only one who ever says from the OA. Kingsley Benadir from the OA. Um, yeah, so if that sounds like your cup of tea, it is on newsstands right now where you can get uh, a copy posted to your house from greatmagazines.co.uk. Indeed you can. And that is it for news. Let's move on to this week's reviews. And first up this week, we have Loki at last, uh, which landed on Disney Plus last week, but was very much embargoed when you guys recorded. Uh, This sees the return of Tom Hiddleston's Asgardian mischief maker after he stepped into a portal in Avengers Endgame. Boyd, 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 Boyd. Did this live up to the hype? Yes, uh, is the answer. I mean, what a relief. After the frankly tedium of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, um, which was, I mean, we don't need to, to it. It was fine. It, it was, was fine. fine. It, it was, was the fine. most fine. Right. It was the most fine, exactly. But I think this reminded me of, you know, this, it, it's, I think if you're going to do a Marvel TV series, you've got to reshape it. You've got to kind of come up with a new genre. You've got to, I think, you've got to kind of reinvent 
the character or at least reinvent the setting that you're putting the character in and this is and, and for me this took that the character of Loki and turned it into and I tweeted this last night it's defending your life this is Albert Brooks's masterpiece comedy one of my favorite films of all time defending your life uh which is where he and Meryl Streep are stranded in a kind of afterlife where they have to where they're shown clips of from their life and the scene where he is shown clips from his life Loki um in this show by Owen Wilson's character the detective character is literally almost like the way it's shot the design of it everything it's literally a tribute to defending your life and I really need to listen to speak to find out um from the writer michael waldron if it's deliberate or just kind of you know was a tribute or, or you know a pastiche or a inspired by it in any way and i was scouring the internet and i couldn't find any explicit reference to it but it's so much like it it's remarkable and in a good way because it it's it's it starts off with being quite comical in a kind of like a kind of brazil style way where it's, it's talking about it's it's putting loki in this kind of bureaucracy where and there's a very, I thought the scene where all of his everything he's ever said is that pile of papers of everything he's ever said <laughs> and he keeps saying stuff and he <laughs> the guy has to keep, print out a new one on top of it was such a clever little bit of writing to establish the Brazil style bureaucracy of the situation he's finding himself in. He then gets matched up with um, with uh, Owen Wilson's character and just in, I mean I love Owen Wilson anyway and obviously he's playing his he's playing his his, his own character the surfer dude laid back you know but. The way he bounces off Tom Hiddleston is fantastic. The way Tom Hiddleston's character bounces off the characters played by Gugu and Bartha Raw and Wumi Masako is also fantastic. And I want to see more of those characters. And I'm sure we will see more of those characters as the six episodes continue. So it's funny, inventive, kind of fascinating to work out what's going on, work out what's going on in the timeline. So for the first half of the show, it's being funny and you're introduced to this new world. It's world building and it's fascinating and it's entertaining. And then, but what I wasn't expecting is then the late in that first episode when um, Loki is confronted by the fact that he is a murderous villain in some ways was absolutely fascinating. And I think the way the dialogue in that scene where um, he's been confronted by that and he's trying to kind of understand it and explain how he's ended up and he sees and he's kind of seeing for the first time and he's kind of welling up and he's kind of realizing not maybe not for the first time but he's certainly being confronted by who he is and what he is and what he's done is incredibly mm. powerful so on a on a spins on a dime this episode it starts off being out and out funny almost like a sitcom and it ends up being kind of really thought-provoking and interesting and i know you know you get villainous characters murderous characters interrogated you know that happens a lot but the way they've done it in this first episode and th and then you know i watched the second episode which we can't talk about i think it's embargoed but i thought it was just brilliantly done i have to say so credit to michael waldron kate heron the the, the um director I, uh, tom hiddleston my one criticism right this is this is nitpicking tom hiddleston as loki does that thing where he chuckles after he's saying something clever and smart or even just chuckles as a, as, as a response to someone confronting him about something and he does it a lot and I and I and I halfway through I was thinking just just we need a few fewer of those chuckle moments all right chuckle brother um, you're triggered by his chuckling I'm a bit just so many of them and once you notice it that he's chuckling after everything he says. It's really irritating. You're like, just, you've just got to stop <laughs> so, that. So, thanks, I love boy, Tom. for bringing that to all of our attention. <laughs> yeah, it's just my tip for Tom Hiddleston, if he's listening. But, and the other, my final thing I wanted to mention is, 
Natalie Holt's music is phenomenal. I loved it so much. The whole design of the show has a kind of like late 60s, early 70s vibe, which I thought was fascinating. And her music has this kind of like electronic, it's almost like something like craft work meets something else. And the, all, all the way through, the music is brilliant. But the theme tune on the title sequence is fantastic. I loved that. So I, I absolutely loved every minute of this. I thought, I thought I think I might have even, I think it's my favourite possibly of the, I mean, there's only three. Favourite of the I- Marvel TV shows so far. Yeah, see, I think it's maybe a little too soon to say in my book for that. I, I, I thought this was great, but I think after two episodes, it's very hard to say. But I think more to the point comparing it to something like WandaVision, which after two episodes, I was really flat on and then turned right. into a work of genius. I'm, I'm talking took- as opening episodes, as first yeah, two episodes sure, compared absolutely. to WandaVision. Yeah. I'd never want to watch those Wanda- WandaVision episodes ever again, right? No, no, and they had no, to no, do what the they did. Few. They had to do what they did, and they established that it was, and it was bold and brave and maverick and brilliant. But I never want to sit through that again. Whereas I've already watched watched the first episode twice of this one, and I'm kind of really psyched to to watch it. And you think it's a thing you could go back to, like the Marvel films, oh, completely. Best, which is why I think it's. It's really layered, though, as well. And it's exactly as you say. Like, it's it's part kind of workplace comedy, like almost office-esque humour. And then it's also really sort of like deep, dramatic, introspective, looking at the human psyche and forcing this character. And what I like about this is because this isn't Loki as we know him. This isn't the Loki of Ragnarok. It's not the Loki of, of Infinity War. This is the Loki of Avengers the first Avengers, mm. and they do a lot of character growth in this first episode to get him to a different place than he was when we lose him in the films, but also a different place than he was when we join him at the beginning of the show. Like, because he see, he goes, sees the fate of his people, he sees, you know, he's forced to look inside himself. And I think what Loki's never had, really, or at least not we never thought he's had, is self-awareness. And... Yeah. In this, you start to realise that he has a lot more self-awareness than we've ever given him credit for. The fact that he knows that he only does these extreme things to project fear because he's weak. He knows he's weak. He's lived his life in the shadow of Thor. You know, and I loved I loved that about that character. The insecurity of that character and the fact that he's always, you know, changing masks and trying one scheme, trying another scheme. And I like Owen Wilson just has the perfect energy to go against his as Mobius yeah. just the way he kind of talks to him and, and and just he has no time for him and he has a very specific thing that he needs to do and he needs Loki to do it but he also doesn't need to take any of Loki's shit and that first episode is incredibly dialogue heavy it's a really talky episode of television a lot more happens in the second episode which we can't really talk about um but it sets the scene perfectly and I you know I feel certainly from watching these first two that if they keep this up this will 100% be the best thing they've done mm. uh, on TV not necessarily yeah. ruling out the films but it was but yeah I mean it, it works and it works very well and I thought it would from the from the trailers and even the concept like it's batshit and it's wacky but they've lent into that as you say that gone for that sort of retro future aesthetic which I love and you know just the, the very concept of taking the god of mischief and putting him in the midst of an overwhelming bureaucracy is just inherently funny right from the start because they're all about rules and he's having none of it um but yeah and and hiddleston is fantastic so yes big thumbs up from me on this one i liked it an awful lot um so i absolutely loved this um and you know this is not meat and potatoes let us be very clear about that it is a little bit Doc, I kept shouting, the person I, I went to see this with the other night, I kept shouting, it's Doctor Who, in his ears <laughs> all the way through. And it is like Doctor Who, Wes Anderson, The Office, all rolled into one brilliant thing. And I think it is tricky because you've got all of that exposition to do because they 
although obviously it's probably going to be mainly watched by by people those films i think they have to create something that can be accessible to pretty much anyone i think they did a really good job of having exposition that didn't feel like exposition do you know what i mean it felt Mm -hmm. really kind of authentic and natural and organic and there were enough tidbits in there that if you knew already knew all that stuff then you were learning other bits as well the kind of way they've humanized them i find really interesting that bit boyd was talking about i find super like super emotional as well and i wasn't expecting that the deafness which they move between these tones is incredibly smart and i think it's the writing but i also think kate heron's direction there's often this thing right about marvel and how you know, Kevin Feige runs the whole ship and how they choose directors who aren't huge names and have huge profiles mm. so that they can be kind of used by the Marvel machine to do what they want to do. So think about, you know, Captain Marvel with Anna Boden and Ryan Flack. That was kind of the, the where this conversation began. And I think you watch this and it's audacious and it's bold and she takes risks. I, I think what they do is identify really interesting filmmakers and I think Kate does an amazing job here I think the chemistry between Owen Wilson and Tom Hiddleston you know I wasn't hugely blown away by the trailer I think I talked about that on this podcast how it did it wasn't as funny as I was expecting it to be but actually when you've got these scenes where they there's a bit more looseness to the back and forth and they have a bit of time to build up this dynamic I found it completely convincing one name Masaku I just think is (laughs) She is just brilliant. She commits so much to every single scene. I think the way they've done the Time Variance Authority is really smart and funny and precise. And I think that the the way they map this and tell this story with such precision and intent, I think they've made something which isn't easy look really, really easy. It's, It's done with such class that I just think it's, I honestly, this is my favourite, and we are comparing like to like. So, just my, how I felt about the first couple of episodes of One Division versus this, this just captivated me straight away. This work, this surreal, beautiful, funny, spiky world that they've created. It does really pull into focus how meh Falcon and the Winter Soldier was though, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Because like we came mm-hmm. through WandaVision and yes, as we said, like it starts in a very deliberate way and you need to experience that as a whole complete thing. But it was audacious and they did incredibly bold things with it. And then Falcon and the Winter Soldier was so aggressively in middle of the road all the way through. And like, it wasn't a bad show by any stretch. Like, I, we watch worse stuff every week. But it didn't, you know, you watch this, you know, oh, I mean, this is great. Like, they are doing really great work with this. I just think being able to have real cogence and literacy around this, there's so many pitfalls of ways it could have gone wrong or been mm. too weird or been too surreal or they took too safe a pass. I think the language they've developed to tell this story particularly... And how that works with the score and the production, I just think it's a really brilliant, complete, cogent piece of work that just kind of lands right in the right spot. It is very, very good indeed. And Loki is available to watch. Well, the first episode is available to watch on Disney Plus now, with the second episode dropping on Wednesday. Next up this week, we have Physical on Apple, which sends us back to the 1980s and Rose Byrne's Sheila Rubin in a dark comedy about self-discovery through aerobics isn't that right terry yes james 
So, where to start with this one? Mm-hmm. So, suppose we could start by saying there is black comedy and then there is this show. <laughs> Fuck me. Well, let's start. Let's start at the beginning. So, Roseburn, who is um, very committed in this role, um, plays Sheila Rubin, and she is a woman who basically has a lot of shit going down in her life. She, and and all of this stuff is is established early on, so th- these aren't spoilers. She's got an eating disorder. She's got a very fucked up relationship with her husband, played by Rory Scovel. Uh, the thing opens on him basically trying to talk threesome with a teenage student. She's a housewife who's clearly kind of subsumed her own ambitions um, for her husband. She convinces him to go into politics and he kind of does it on her idea. It's clear that she's far smarter than he is. The biggest thing she has going on is what I'm going to call internalised misogyny. (laughs) Now, and I can't wait to hear what Boyd thinks about this. Because the basic setup is you see her or somebody you assume is her in a leotard on telly about to do aerobics and then it goes back in time to show you how she got there. And it is kind of the main story is told through a voiceover, which is her inner monologue. Basically, this inner monologue is pretty much constant and she is a dreadful human being. (laughs) A dreadful, dreadful cunt. I've got to crank. Like... So imagine the worst thing that people, you know, when you walk in somewhere and you think, oh God, I really hope this dress doesn't look stupid. And oh, why does that woman look at me funny? I wonder what she's thinking. Imagine the very worst thing that woman could be thinking. And that's what will literally being voiced and narrated by Rose Byrne during these scenes. So basically she hates everybody else. She judges everybody else, especially physically, but she also very much hates herself for being weak, for not being strong enough, for not speaking out when she should for eating food when she feels like she shouldn't. Um, very this, this voiceover is very toxic, I would say. And what has this got to do with aerobics? That is a very good question because <laughs> it's established that she's a massive aerobics TV star and you could draw parallels with Jane Fonda, for example, who began a, her own workout video empire. Uh, you know, she's pretty much spearheaded, I think, that entire aerobics movement that we saw in the 80s. And it began apparently as a way to fund her own husband's political career. So you could see parallels there. It becomes clear, I've watched two episodes, that basically aerobics is the way that she transformed slash freed herself. Now, my problem with this is it is so fucking brutal. I can't even begin to tell you. So the monologue, which there is so much of, is unrelenting and how much for example is it exposing and challenging and revealing internalized misogyny and how much of it is just reveling in it and i definitely felt like it was the latter so some of the stuff she says about other women being fat about her how disgusting her own body is about eating food about just the worst things you can think anybody would think about themselves and other people and it's so unrelenting and so bleak. And I understand we could have a very long intellectual discussion about where that comes from and why women hate themselves and hate other women. But just from a pure watching telly perspective, it leaves you with a really fucking horrible taste in your mouth. Mm. And I found it quite like distressing to watch. And the bits where it was meant to be funny, 
it so digs into that look at that fat beach whale of woman over there like that it i i found it really hard to actually find it funny because it was so harsh so fucking harsh and and i think this is a really interesting setup if you think about it think about the 80s right socially and culturally a fascinating time you've got the rise of individualism which really came into its own in eight in the 80s a very specific type of capitalism diet culture was huge in the 80s which was very much about getting as thin as possible and and brute and being brutal to your body think even just about aerobics and those outfits they wear which show every bit of skin and preferably every bit of bone you had second wave feminism in the 80s like this is actually a fundamentally interesting time but i can't kind of see any of that because i'm just like totally bombarded by the hate of this voiceover which is a woman i just found offensive and i i struggled to kind of get to the intellectual place of going this is a really interesting subversion of how women we're taught to <laughs> hate our own bodies and hate the bodies of others and why we set up this competition from blah 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 it's just really fucking unpleasant to watch it does have this kind of it's it reminds me a bit of glow it's got that campy um nurse campiness 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 neon you know the hair all of that going on created by annie wiseman who was writer producer as desperate housewives and that gives you a good sense of the tone you know desperate housewives some seasons desperate housewives it's fucking brutal for me i feel like the world has moved on from that kind of tone and that kind of humor i've only seen the first two so maybe by episode four it's doing something incredibly modern and radical and you know but all I can see is kind of um, awful woman being horrible to herself and everybody else, and it's desperately unpleasant to watch. And that, for me, undercuts what is actually an incredible performance from Rose Byrne. But I just found it really difficult to watch. I found it desperately unpleasant. I, it, no matter where her internalised hate comes from, she's a dreadful person. Without <laughs> wanting to be James Dyer, she's the, she pretty much carries the entire thing on her shoulders, and she's yeah. so horrible you're like, just go and walk into the sea. I, I don't want to watch you anymore. I don't want to spend any time with you anymore. I don't give a fuck if you were saved by aerobics, quite frankly, because you don't deserve to be saved by aerobics. You don't deserve to be saved by aerobics. Um, so that's where I am on it. I'm not going to watch anymore. It made me feel really sad and really shit about myself and about other women. It, it fails the bell end test quite spectacularly, doesn't it? I have to be said, this, the level of self-loathing in this, I found very hard to watch as well. It was just so depressing. It's just like, the, as you say, the, the internalised misogyny, the amount of just like guilt and hate she directs at herself for like wanting to have a slice of cobbler or wanting to eat a burger and it just it makes you it makes you sad it does just make you sad uh, i didn't enjoy this at all at well, any then the point way, if, if it was just that i think i would have been able to get my head around that a bit more but they match her self-hate is so matched by utter vit vile yes. vitriol to everybody else mainly other women mm. and that makes it hard to watch because you as it kind of you get sympathy for her because you know she hasn't clearly eaten a carb or a bit of sugar <laughs> in decades but then she's she's so horrible to other people and i found any context for that like i can't see a forgivable or justifiable context for that it's not entertainment, is it? It's just not entertainment. But as you say, she's she's irredeemable. She's awful. Her husband is awful. Her friends are awful. Everyone in this show is awful. It is unbearable. 
They have, I'm sorry, but they've just miscalculated this whole series, I think. And I think it's a real, because I do not subscribe. As as you know, I do not subscribe. I'm quite happy to watch Bell Ends. I'm quite you happy are. to watch Succession, yeah. right? So this is, this is, so the thing, why Succession works is, you've got a gathering of Bell Ends who are all on various levels objectionable, amoral, etc. But mm. they're also funny. You want to spend time with them. You want to hang out with them. And it's down to the dialogue and the brilliance of the writing and the acting and the performances. Rose Byrne's character is just annoying and irritating. Kind of a bit stupid. I found it a bit kind of quite patronising as well that she was saying stuff that was clearly a bit, just a bit ignorant. And I was like, yeah, not in, in, and no wit to her dialogue, that endless internal monologue that we're talking about. It's just boring. It's not funny or clever in any way whatsoever. So it's fine to have objectionable characters, but you have to give us a reason to want to spend time with them. And you are not given any reason to, spend, to want to spend time with any of these characters. Halfway through the first... These episodes are half, uh, half an hour long. Halfway through the first episode, I was like, oh my God, it feels like it's been going on for two hours. How long... I was actually like, how long is this episode? It's only half an hour. It feels like a lifetime because it's excruciatingly unbearable to watch and boring at the same time and the glow comparison is so apt because glow worked hard at making those characters interesting so a lot of those characters in glow are a bit a bit annoying in various ways and a bit idiotic and ignorant but they're funny and compelling and you want to and you want to spend time with them this the only thing this has going for it is that it's you know is its depiction of the 80s and you know some quite amusing production design and that kind of nostalgic thing and the and the, and the music choices etc but apart from that it was genuinely i could not stand it I could, and they fucked it up because it's a good idea it's an interesting idea as you say aerobics was a massive thing massive phenomenon it comes out in stranger things you know i thought they, they stranger things dealt with aerobics in the last series in that mall in a witty interesting way you know nostalgic way but the way this does it it's just you just don't want to hear anything it more about any of them and it's a disaster <laughs> i'm sorry yeah oh and by the way first episode directed by craig gillespie yes right of i Tonya yes. and cruella fame i found this fascinating he's must have an i don't know what obsession with cruel nasty women being cruel and nasty to each other i mean i like cruella don't get me wrong i think it's a really good film but there is that element to it that's a bit like mm. <laughs> and i Tonya definitely has that i mean um, i mean in space it's a bit weird that he's fixated on this thing isn't it like i think if he hadn't have directed this first episode it might have turned out all right i don't know but it doesn't help you've got him and his attitude <laughs> front and centre in this in that first episode. Yeah, and I just feel like somebody said, oh, this will be like a really feminist thing to do. But it's actually like, I just feel like people involved in this, somebody somewhere doesn't like women mm. and any sympathy you're meant to have with her because her husband's a dick and is clearly shagging around and clearly like, you know, is, is way less intelligent than he believes he is and he's incredibly patronising. You're like, to be honest... I'm glad you've got each other because at least you're not inflicting <laughs> your absolute horror of personalities and characters onto anybody else in the world. Yeah. Well, 100%. if there was any ambiguity there, Terry didn't love this show. And I think it's fairly safe to say we're all on the same page. But uh, if you nevertheless wish to subject yourself to physical, it is airing from Friday on Apple TV+. Plus. Finally this week, we have Together. 
Uh, which, while it is indeed a feature-length one-off film-type thing, I will actually concede this is much more of a TV drama than a film. Um, this is written by Dennis Kelly. It is directed by Stephen Daldry. It stars Sharon Horgan and James McAvoy as a couple in what is essentially, I guess, a two-person play that charts the course of the last 12 months under coronavirus from both the absurdity to the tragedy of it. Isn't that right, Boyd? Yes, it's quite it's quite funny that we have our regular debate about what constitutes a film from a. This a, is not a, a, a film. Feature. It doesn't even feel well, like but a what's, film. What do you know? What was funny about it is that BBC is marketing it as a film, and they I, keep calling it a film yeah, in all of their advertising and marketing. But I think that's because they're slightly worried about the fact that it's very theatrical, as you yes. say. It is it's really you can absolutely imagine it on stage, watching it on mm. stage because it's in the one setting of the home of this couple. They're literally they're talking to the audience, you know, in that in that style that. As, as you, that breaking the fourth wall stop, but they're constantly doing it in a very theatrical way. Huge single takes, huge single takes, exactly. And you know what? This verged on to start with. I did think this was in danger of being a bit bellendy and a bit difficult to take and a bit much. And I wasn't quite hundred percent convinced I was going to want to spend time with these people to continue this ongoing topic. This is the difference between this and fucking physical. So it's physical will forever be known as fucking physical. So it's so annoying. Is that this has Dennis Kelly and who is, you know, writing and the nuance of the situation is what makes it work. And I think it's really interesting. So it starts out at the beginning of the pandemic and um, they're just they're, they're not given names James McAvoy and Sean Hogan's character they're just he and she and they're on the verge of splitting up and they're basically splitting up and then suddenly they have to decide they're going to have to spend the entire time locked down together with their poor little son who has to endure listening to them fucking shouting at each other constantly um, so it establishes right from the start that you know this is a this is a relationship in crisis the the pandemic adds to the whole crisis but it then goes down interesting pathways and interesting takes interesting turns their relationship and it's a relationship unfolding possibly falling apart possibly getting building it back together who knows and what I thought was and I, in the end I thought it was excellent because it kind of and there's all kinds of things like do you really do we this was made quite a, a while ago you know I think it was filmed in 10 days and everyone decided to do it very quickly and like let's do a pandemic themed lockdown themed thing about a relationship in crisis great idea but I think now I do feel like a lot of people are thinking as we face this, are we going to be allowed to return to normal on June 21st or whatever? We'll find out on Monday from the government that people are like, do I really want to see anything about lockdown anymore? Do I really want to sit through people being thrust together and, and all the and jokes about supplies at the supermarket and, you know, making your own bread and all of the call, all the kind of all of the kind of things that have become quite banal about lockdown, but have discussed relentlessly. And of course, just the constant, the tragedy of it, really. But this faces the tragedy brilliantly um, and convincingly. And I just believed in it. I believed in these characters. I believed in the complexity of their relationship. I thought it was raw. And it had that, the kind of rawness that you get um, in a lot of Dennis Kelly's stuff, from right from pulling the very f- the first thing he did on BBC Three with Sharon Horgan and Co, and he just doesn't shy away from. And it's got a little bit of that breeders thing, by the way, almost like the way that you know the the the, the people deal with each other in breeders that is difficult and challenging, and border- is, it happens in this where they're really harsh and cruel to each other. They're horrible to each other. 
but in a way that I found believable and convincing and interesting and fascinating. And, and, and I know couples like this. I know couples like this. And I see them go through these things. And I see them interact with each other the way they interact in this. And I see them have, do that in front of me, you know, sometimes. And I'm like, oh, I'm always like shocked. I'm like, wow, this is really dark, like how you re- relate to each other. They re- literally, multiple times in this show, they talk about killing each other, wanting to kill each other <laughs> and hate each other and despise each other. But and in the end, there is some kind that's, that's not as bleak as it sounds somehow. And I really liked it. I thought it worked really well. And Sharon Hall, James McAvoy is great. Massive bellend. So, in, you know, uh, James McAvoy's character, I thought was a massive bellend from start to finish. I'm not sure necessarily that he does these things. Is that much of a bellend? I don't know. It'd be fascinating to speak to. But Sharon Horgan, I thought, was the was the, was the the star. She was so brilliant in this. I mean, she, obviously, I love her in everything. She's amazing in everything from Catastrophe onwards. But she has to do, she runs the gamut of emotion in this. And she is phenomenal. Every single moment. And it, it, it's just him and her and the kid. But every single moment when she's being funny she's brilliantly funny when she's being she's dealing with bad stuff she's she's incredible so just as a showcase for her it's i i, I loved it um but i thought it was really effective and interesting interesting is a slightly banal word to end on but there you go go on james go on you can stand I, it could you i fucking loved this i oh. absolutely <gasps> loved it uh, i really Short really horror. really loved it and i didn't know what it was going to be going into it and it's an hour and a half long, but it is so well written. And from the get-go, I was a bit wrong-footed by it because obviously they're addressing the camera. They're these huge, sweeping, single takes. Like, it couldn't be more theatrical if it was actually on a stage. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, is this going to be the full hour and a half or is it going to be vignettes? Are we going to go to different homes? Like, how is this going to work? Because I thought, I'm not sure if there's an hour and a half in these two bickering about how much they don't like each other. Like, that's going to wear thin pretty fast. But I thought, but I'm enjoying it at the moment. And then... You get sucked in just the quality of the dialogue, the amount of character development that they push through this dialogue, and the nuances of the delivery, the fact that they cut each other off, they talk over each other. She'll be talking about one thing, he'll be talking about something else while she's talking, because crucially, they're not talking to each other most of the time. They are addressing us, the audience, and interjecting, and one of them will be disagreeing with another, and about, oh no, you tell him, no, you tell the story better than I tell it. And it's, and then you've got their son, Artie, who never speaks, who just occasionally wanders through flicking yogurt against a window though which yeah. is lovely but what i thought about this sort of more than anything you know and it's it's brilliantly entertaining it is funny it is heartbreaking it is all that stuff but it is a, almost a perfect capsule of the last 12 months like it begins when lockdown first starts the first day of the first lockdown in the uk and you know it's simple things like you couldn't get you know aubergines at the supermarket and so we act like a massive twat to the woman in tesco and then gradually it gets to you know it gives you the, the death counts from covid as you go through as it shifts forward in time in in increments and you start to realize that what started as an interesting kind of these two people together how are they going to navigate their relationship in lockdown it isn't that it's the kind of the the tragedy of this unfolding national disaster and the way they use their relationship to talk about the government's failings and there's there's just a really heartbreaking bit where she talks about numbers i won't get into the detail but she talks about numbers and that how numbers are so important in this pandemic and then when you know, the tragedy the is that we all... Yeah, exponential, yeah, the yeah. definition yeah. of exponential, yeah. what it means in human terms, not in numerical terms, but also that as well. And then, you know, we all know the statistics about people who've died in care homes. We've all read the news, but it's very easy to look at charts and graphs and numbers and fail to really take into account the human impact of these things. I think what this did really well is it humanised them, but it humanised the statistics and it humanised what this pandemic has meant for people other than, oh, we've got to work from home for a year. And I thought it did a perfect job of 
being a brilliantly written drama about a couple under awkward circumstances, a really poignant look at the human cost of this pandemic, and also a capsule of 12 months in popular culture, right down to the genius choice of music that played over the very end of Mm. this episode. And yeah, I found it completely captivating. I loved every minute of it. So there. And even though they were both in their own way, Bell and he much more than she, you still root for them to an extent. And I think there's still sympathy there. So it's not irredeemable Bellendery, which is normally where I fall down. I mean, the setup is really interesting because I remember talking to a friend of mine saying, God, there are so many situations people are going to be thrown into that are going to determine the kind of course of the rest of their lives because of, of circumstances that have happened because of COVID. So you heard about people who'd been on two dates moving in together because it was the only way they could keep seeing each other. People who were kind of like this couple in the on in the throes of splitting up or who'd recently split up who then had to live in the same house again like. And it's a it's a really fascinating premise, I think, for a COVID drama. I'm a bit where Boyd not where Boyd was, but where he mentioned people might be, which is like I was getting kind of flashbacks to things that I not wanted to think about again so things like not being able to get food at the supermarket I you know I had a newborn baby in those first weeks of COVID I remember the panic because they had no nappies and we were like what do we do if there are no nappies and we can't find any nappies anywhere what we have to like fucking make one out of a towel like that sense of of the 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 panic around the mundane stuff I'd totally forgotten all that stuff and it captures all of that because it moves between as you say kind of the, the small, the sadness of mundanity, but then also more epic tragedy, and it moves between them over that hour and a half. I have to say, I did find it a bit hard work. I really did. And they and it wasn't because you, you can't fault the writing, you cannot fault the performances. You really got the sense of this, is, you know, these are two people who have managed somehow to get away without spending much time in the same room, who've now been forced into the same room. And of course, this would be the consequence all these conversations they have, all these situations they have. For me, the problem is the medium. So this is an absolutely amazing play, but I feel like it's an amazing play that's been put on the telly and I can't get over that. I don't care if it's television or film, both it's the same conversation for me that it felt like a televised play as opposed to a piece of television or an actual film. So... I mean, I watched this one and a half times um, just to see if my, <laughs> if my opinion still held as I like to do. I just didn't get through it twice. And yeah, I, I I, probably won't go back much again. As the quality is there. Everything. If this is your thing, you will absolutely love it. But I wasn't convinced that the medium was right. It's interesting that it was produced by Sonia Friedman, who is you know, a renowned th- theatre producer, and directed by Stephen Daldry, who, you know, is more famous for his... I do wonder, I haven't really read up on it, but I do wonder whether it was just a, meant to be a play to start with. And then, then they thought, well, obviously no one can go to the theatre at the moment mm. and let, why, let's do it as a TV show. It does have that sense feel to it completely. I have to say, I have to agree with that, yeah. When is it on, Boyd? It is on Thursday on BBC Two at 9pm. Thursday on BBC Two at 9pm then together. 
Other things out this week, Boyd. Um, confusingly, Star comes to star on Disney Plus this week on the 18th of oh, 2021. Yeah. Uh, seasons one to three of the show, Star, the musical drama from uh, from Lee Daniels, is coming to star on Disney Plus because, of course, it is. Yeah, um, all the fo- foxes now no more. The fox shows now no more. So look, yes. everything that was meant, the fact, War of the Worlds, which was would have been on the fox show, which would have been a fox show. Yeah, that's yeah. on Star now as well. Handmaid's Tale season four. Hammerstead is back on Sunday in its traditional Channel 4 9 o'clock. So I have to say, I am not up to speed with The Handmaid's Tale. Neither am I. No, no, neither. Perhaps I just, I mean, even Terry, and Terry lives for grimness. Like, it is her bread and butter. It is the air she breathes. It is the food she eats. Even she gave up on Handmaid's Tale, didn't you? I did. I did, but I, I have been urged by a couple of people to give it another go because apparently... I jumped out of peak grimness. I just couldn't take it anymore. And apparently it does have a little bit balance. And I wouldn't go so far as to say levity, let's be honest. <laughs> but it, it eases a little bit. And I've heard great things about this season. So I'm tempted. Um, although I've got a massive watch list at the moment. So I'm trying to decide whether it's worth re-entering The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> uh, what else on? Uh, Godfather of Harlem, which is the forest uh, Whitaker show that is on Stars Play season two of that coming on the twentieth. Love Victor season two comes to star on the eighteenth as well. There's a couple of nine one one shows nine one one nine one one Lone Star. They're both returning to Sky Witness this week, both on the fourteenth at nine and ten pm respectively. Um, anything I've missed there, Boydie? I think you've uh, I think you've pretty much covered it. I have to say, yeah. I mean, I won't go through the schedule for the European Football Championship. Yes, please don't. Please don't. I believe we can survive without that. It's going to be interesting when we face the period where um, TV is mainly football and Wimbledon tennis. um, That's the bane of my life, that stuff is. But uh, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. I'm assuming our pick of the week this week is just Loki. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. 100%. Make sure you watch Loki if you have access to that one. But that is it for this week's Pilot TV podcast. If you had fun, then do feel free to drop us a five-star review wherever you can leave podcast reviews. And, of course, you can find us on social media at James C. Dyer, at Terry underscore White, and at Boyd Hilton. Uh, next week's show will be a truly monumental one, as, while I'm sure we will be doing some other shows, none of that matters, because next week marks the arrival of the seventh and final season of <laughs> Bosch. Yeah. Yes, of the final season of Bosch. It's all coming down to this, Boyd. I mean, until Harry Terry's turns up face. in the spin-off show, but Terry's let's not get face. into that. All the Bosch, yeah. all the time. Until then, pilot out. <laughs>